Hey guys, this is Eric. I'm one of the ministers here at the Robertsdale Church of Christ. I just want to say thank you for checking out this message, and I'd like to invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 1030 if you're ever in the Robertsdale area. If you want to find out more information about the Robertsdale Church, head over to our website at robertsdalechurch.com. All right, let's get to the message. I'm praying that God will use this message to bless you and will help you grow closer to Jesus Christ. Well, the opening statement in the Bible makes a really bold claim. I don't know if you've ever really paid attention to it like that, but in the opening sentence of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, for the Israelites, the very first time they read this text, that they were told this, they're coming out of the land of Egypt where they've spent the last generation. They're getting ready to head into the land of Canaan where there's going to be a multiplicity of gods. They've spent the last several hundred years in Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. They've been learning about all kinds of gods. So they would have had a natural question. Their question would have been, all right, cool. God created the heavens and the earth. Which one? Which God created the heavens and the earth, and the rest of the story of the Bible is designed to teach us about the very God that created the heavens and the earth. And as if you were to keep reading in the story of the Bible, you get to Deuteronomy chapter 6 to a really important text that's called the Shema. The Shema is a Hebrew word for the word listen or hear, and Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 starts out, listen, Israel, listen to me, gather in, pay attention to this, are you listening? Listen. The Lord, our God, the Lord, our God, our God, the Lord, our God, Yahweh is one. It was an audacious claim for there to only be one God. But even in the world religions today, it's not that odd to be in a religion where there's only one God. There are other religions that make the same claim that there's only one God. What separates Christianity from the rest of them? So we started the series last week called The Essentials, and I appreciate Dylan kicking off the message, kicking off this series. He had an awesome message reminding us of that first core tenet of Christianity, that Jesus is Lord. And so what we're doing is we're spending seven weeks on seven critical teachings that we can't disagree on. We have to understand. And we also want to be able to verbalize and to recite and to share these core teachings with other people. Why are you a follower of Jesus? Why are you a Christian? When somebody says, what's so different? about Christianity from this religion. These are the very essential teachings that separate Christianity from all other religions in the world. And so to help them better understand, we even gave you hand motions that we're going to introduce each week. So what we're going to talk about today, what separates Christianity from other religions of the world is the teaching and the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Somebody once said that trying to explain the Trinity will make you lose your mind, but denying the Trinity will make you lose your soul. So we're going to do our best this morning to try to understand what the Bible describes is a mystery. If you walk away today a little confused, welcome to the club. At least you're not standing in front of people trying to explain something you don't fully understand for roughly half an hour. So I don't want you to be frustrated. My goal today is to give you the basics of it and then one major implication. Doesn't mean we're getting done early. That's never happened before. I want to be consistent here. But hopefully one takeaway that we can actually apply to our lives of what the teaching of the Trinity means to us. Let's talk about what is the Trinity. 
It is that God eternally exists as one essence in three distinct persons. And what we see throughout the story of the Bible is you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In text that Hurston read to us, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, as Dylan kicked off this series for us and talked about Jesus is Lord, he gave us the first little hand gesture to help us remember each of these teachings. He called it a mnemonic device, and it's something that is designed to help us easily remember that certain teaching that we want to give to you, that we want you to know this is essential. So the one that he talked about last week, everybody give me a thumbs up. It lets me know you're with me. It lets me know you're listening. You're awake. If the person beside you is already falling asleep, you know, fist them with four fingers and tell them to wake up. That thumbs up says, I agree. I believe that Jesus is Lord. What separates Christianity from all other religions is our God, our King is alive and he is reigning Through Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, our Savior is alive and he is reigning uh, alive today in heaven. And we say, I agree that Jesus is the Lord of my life. It's what separates us. Now, the other thing that I want us to think about for today with this teaching of the Trinity is I want you to hold up your index finger. Tell me, I'll tell you you're number one, you tell me I'm number one. It's a reminder that God is one. But I want you to take that finger and turn around and look at it for just minutes. I don't want to make light of this. If you've actually like lost part of your finger, then pick the other one. But each of us that has a whole finger, what you're going to notice is there are two lines on your fingers at each knuckle. And those two lines create three sections on your index finger. And that's a great image of what the Trinity is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But God is one. It's an easy to remember way to understand, in some degree, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the text that Hurston read to us this morning is going to help us to understand this teaching because in that text, if you paid attention, what you notice is that Jesus has come to the Jordan River. He's come to be baptized by John. And this is where he's going to begin his public ministry. And in Mark's gospel, Mark's got a reason for sharing the details that he did. He said, Jesus came to the Jordan to be baptized by John. And when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the heavens are torn open. And the voice that comes from heaven is from the father. And he says, this is my beloved son in him. I am well pleased. And what we see here is we see the Trinity working together in what one author, C.S. Lewis, calls the divine dance. And I love this image. In fact, I've spent years learning about different images. Maybe you've heard about the image of the egg to describe the Trinity, and that's okay. It's not a bad illustration. Or maybe water, steam, and ice all being water in different forms. I love the image of the dance. This is something that I've recently discovered going back, reading through Mere Christianity and other works like it by C.S. Lewis, a great message from Tim Keller that some of these thoughts are coming from, this concept of the divine dance. And I love this idea. Now, understand that I stand before you as a person that I have no rhythm in my feet, okay? The rhythm that is within my body is within my hands. I can play an instrument, but I have no rhythm in my feet. You can ask my wife and my kids. My dancing is to embarrass them, and that is it. But I do 
the concept of dancing. And I think it's awesome that there are people on this planet who do have rhythm in other parts of their bodies that can move to music. But when you think about dancing, and the reason why I love this image is because when you're dancing with another individual, well, there are times that maybe you're leading and there are times that you're following. Do you remember the wise words from the song by John Michael Montgomery when he said, life's a dance, you learn as you go, sometimes you lead. I see you, my country music fans. Sometimes you follow. And isn't that true that when you're dancing, there are times that you're leading, but there are times that you're following and you're moving around that person and you're moving with that person. There's this rhythm, you're complementing one another, you're working together to make this movement look synchronized and beautiful and amazing. And that's the that Mark is giving us in the opening chapter of his gospel when he describes this beautiful concept of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit being the one God of the Bible, in essence, seen in three distinct persons where you have the Father, who is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, but yet working together as one, not three gods, but one God, in essence, It's beautiful. And you see them moving around one another. You see the Holy Spirit coming down and empowering Jesus. You see the Father enveloping him in love. You see the Son living in service to his Father, empowered by the Spirit. And the language that Mark uses is very intentional because he's trying to take our minds back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, it said, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then it said, and God said. In the very opening statements of the Bible, we're introduced to the concept of the Trinity. You have the Creator God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus said, or excuse me, John wrote, in the beginning, just like in Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word there with God, and the Word was the Word God? Absolutely, because God said, let there be light. And so what John trying to help us understand is that Jesus was present in the creation. Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. He is the very word of God. And when God spoke, we are seeing Jesus on display because in verse 14 of John 1, John wrote, and the word became flesh. He put on flesh and bones and he made his dwelling among us and we beheld his glory. We saw the glory of Jesus and it was the glory of the one and only God, the begotten of the father filled with grace and truth. And he's letting us know that the Son is the Word of God who was there in the beginning and is God. You have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and each of them, they are in this divine dance, working together, complementing one another, living in glorifying love. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, and he said, "Uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son can glorify you. Well, the question is, what does it mean to glorify something? something or someone. Now the word itself, glory, means to make heavy. It's something that's heavy. It's important. But what does it mean to actually glorify something? Well, it means you praise it. It means you find joy in it. It means you delight in it. 
When you find something that's useful to you, it becomes attractive. Maybe it's something you want. Maybe it's a new toy or a new piece of technology, or maybe it's a new car or a new house, or maybe whatever it is that you've been wanting to purchase, you feel like it's going to bring some kind of usefulness to your life. And so you're kind of attracted to it, but you don't glorify it. What you glorify is something that you find beautiful, not because it's useful, but because it's beautiful. You just delight to be in its presence. The greatest analogy that I can come up with is children. There is this glory in children because, no offense kids, there's nothing you give to us as parents, okay? Maybe later on in life when you're taking care of us, but for the very, very, very long time, there's nothing that you're giving other than delight and joy. Yeah, maybe you do some kind things along the way, but I'm going to assume that most of the parents in the room are like us, where you didn't have kids, you'd have somebody to cut the grass or somebody to wash the dishes. Maybe that was a goal in life, but that's not why you had children. You had children to Multiply and fill the land to share love, to grow your family, to delight in. And you find joy in your children just to be with them, just to be in their presence. And you do all kinds of silly stuff and you pay all kinds of money and you go all to all kinds of places and you do all kinds of crazy things and you dress up in stuff and you do parties and all kinds of silly things just to see them smile. You come home from a long day's work where all you want to do is just sit in, sit in your chair, sit on the couch and just relax. But you get down on the ground, go outside and throw the ball, go for the walk, do whatever it is that they're wanting to do because in that moment, their joy is your joy. And what you may not realize is in that moment, you're giving them glory. You're delighting in them. You're praising them, not in some unholy kind of way. You're just enjoying the relationship. That's what Jesus is saying. That's about the best analogy I have to describe what Jesus is saying. He's saying, glorify the Son so that the Son can glorify you. Yeah, it's going to be the cross, and he's going to make much of God. But do you see the reciprocating there? I'm going to glorify you as you're glorifying me. It's this dance together. And this has been going on for all of eternity because in verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given to be with me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given to me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before he created the world? He was living in loving relationship with the Son and the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit were living in this loving, uh, glorifying relationship where they were in this divine dance of moving around one another. You don't give God anything that he needs. When you bring him glory, you're not giving him anything that he needs. He doesn't need your glory because he already lives in a mutually self-giving love and glorifying love with the Son and the Spirit. Yet he invites us in to receive his glory and his joy. It's a beautiful analogy, this concept of the divine dance. And it's something that we desperately need to enter into. In fact, early Christians, this is not a term you're going to find in the Bible, but early Christians spent a lot of time thinking about this concept of the Trinity, trying to work out the language behind it. Several 
councils and meetings together to all try to better understand who God is, who Jesus is, who the Spirit is, how they're working together, and how they're in this dance. And they came up with this term, perichoresis, that you don't read in Scripture, but that they use to describe this divine dance, the word peri meaning to go around, and choresis meaning to rotate. And so it means to move around. It's this word of the divine dance. There's this awesome quote about this word where it says, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. When early Greek spoke of perichoresis in God, they meant that each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. This is where we get our word choreography or dancing. Now, the opposite of this concept is self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis said that this concept of the divine dance is this dynamic pulsating life and activity of God moving around and toward and with Father, Son, and Spirit in mutual self-giving relationship. But the opposite of that is self-centeredness. Because if the Trinity is about this divine dance, then self-centeredness is about static, being stationary. When you're being self-centered, when I'm being self-centered, I'm being stationary and I'm requiring others to orbit around me. There have been times that I have confessed to you, maybe a little too much, about some of my habits while driving. Maybe I need to be a little more careful. Some of you think I'm an aggressive driver. I'm not an aggressive driver. I just think that everybody should drive like me. It's really not that complicated. I'm not going to yell at you. You can't hear me. I'm just going to coach you from my vehicle. But what I want you to know is if you'll just do this, we'll all be good. If you won't drive the left lane and you'll get over when you're done passing, nobody will ever get in a wreck. And if you never slam on your brakes while going down the interstate, everything will be great. And if you're going to be in the left lane, you better be going above the speed limit because if you're passing somebody and you're not even doing the speed limit, just get behind them. You shouldn't be passing them anyways. You're not in a hurry from the get-go. I've, I've, I've shared too much. I just can't help myself sometimes. What it shows me in those moments is that what I'm expecting is for others to orbit around me, for them to go, oh, there's that vehicle with that guy. Let me get out of his way. Orbit around me. Have you ever come home after a long day's work and all you really want to do is just sit there and others to kind of serve you? I know you don't say that, but sometimes our actions say that. You come in and you sit and you're a little short with your family, a little ill-tempered. They're like, ooh, they're on edge tonight. Be easy. Dad, mom's in a bad mood. Watch yourself. What are we doing in that moment? We're being stationary. I need you to orbit around me. But it doesn't just show up in that. It actually shows up in good things, like things that appear to be selfless. Oh, I'm going to give. And I'm going to give because make me feel good. I mean, I don't say that, but that's sometimes what's going on in my heart. And I'll give as long as it's not making me too uncomfortable. It's requiring others to orbit around me. And here's the thing, when you're being self-centered, when you're being static and stationary, there's no such thing as dancing. Because if you're not moving, you can't be in a divine dance 
with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and certainly not with his people. And what happens when you get a lot of static, self-centered people together that are refusing to orbit around one another? I know this seems crazy because they're standing still, but somehow you get collisions. They start clashing with one another. Well, I think it should be like this, and I think everything should remove, should revolve around me and my feelings and my desires and what I like. And before you know it, that I think has clashed with another I think. And collisions happen. And churches fracture and break up. And relationships are ruined. Feelings are hurt. Somehow, static individuals cause collisions. Yet, the God we serve is in orbit, is in this divine dance that each of us is invited to join. So the Apostle John, at the very end of his life, wrote these three beautiful letters. And the conclusion is pretty much the same, that God is love. You think about it, if there is no God, there is no love, because God is love. The whole concept of the Trinity is the, the teaching about love. But if God doesn't exist, then love is just simply a chemical that's released in our brain for whatever reason, but there's no such thing as that emotion unless God exists. And what John wants us to understand is that because God is love, there's this major implication for us because God lives in loving relationship and mutually self-giving relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're orbiting and dancing and revolving around one another and bringing one another glory and serving one another then the implication is, is that we live in this divine dance, not only with God, but with one another. And the implication for us becomes that the most important thing in your life is to live in mutually self-giving, loving relationship. It's the story of the Bible on repeat, that we are called to live in loving relationship, not expecting others to orbit around me, but to enter into this divine dance with one another and to orient our lives around one another as we are orienting our lives together around God himself. When God becomes the center of your life, you begin to revolve around him. How does this fit into my schedule? How does this new job, how does this career, how does this relationship, how does this desire fit into my relationship with God? How am I going to orient my life around God? Because he is the most important. And how am I going to orient my life around God's people. There are going to be times where I'm going to have to lead and times when I'm going to have to follow and times when I'm going to have to give and times when I'm going to have to step out of the way and times when I'm going to have to step in and move toward even when I don't want to, even when my feelings have been hurt, even when I feel like I've been neglected, I got to move in and I got to move away and I got to step to the side. And because we're all in this beautiful choreographed divine dance that we're invited into, it's this beautiful concept And so if there's this divine dance going on, then the greatest need in your life is to get into it, is to enter into this divine dance. The question then becomes, how do we enter into this divine dance? I want to go back to Mark chapter 1 to a text we haven't read yet. It's right after Jesus comes up out of the water. Spirit descends on Jesus. God speaks. The Father speaks from the sky. It says that the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he's with the wild animals, and the angels are ministering to him. This is such a weird detail about Jesus going to the wilderness, and there's wild animals. 
I mean, yeah, I know wild animals live in the wilderness, but did you have to tell that wild animals live in the wilderness? And if you're in the auditorium class this morning, you have learned today that if there's a detail in the Bible, it's important. It wasn't just for random happenstance. Hey, by the way, he was in the wilderness. And what do you know? In case you didn't, there's wild animals that live out there. No, it's given to us for a reason because it's trying to connect our minds back to something. We've already been connected back to Genesis 1 in this text. So it makes sense that it's connecting us back to the early stories. Is there a story early on in the Bible, specifically in the book of Genesis, specifically in the very first couple of chapters, where there is a man who is living in a place where there are other animals and they appear to be wild, though they're not totally, maybe not in a wilderness, but maybe in a garden where there's going to be something that's going to tempt him. Is there a story like that? Oh yes, there is. That's called Genesis chapter three. It's the third page of your Bible. Here is the man and the woman, the first man and woman living in the garden. And there's, they're living with the animals. They're not wild. They're tamed because sin's not entered into the picture yet. And there's this other beast of the field. He's in the form of a serpent. And we now know that he's Satan. And what Mark is doing is he's connecting us back to this story and he's saying here is going to be this story replayed over but it's going to go entirely different. In the first story, you have the man and the woman placed in the garden. They're giving one command. You can freely eat from any of the trees but the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what do we all say as kids and curious adults? We say, why? Why? Has that ever happened to you, parents? You gave a rule and your children responded, why? Do you want to know why we ask why? Because in that moment, I'm willing to go along if I understand how it benefits me. Every time I ask why, I'm planting my feet, I'm becoming stationary, and I'm saying, yeah, I'll do it, but I need to know what's in it for me. Why? Because I told you so. Whatever. Give me something else. Why? Because I'll ground you or I'll discipline you. Okay, all the motivation that I needed. Or some of you more rebellious kids were like, you know, punishment's not going to be that bad. Pain's only going to last about three minutes based on the last time. I think it's worth the pain. And you went ahead and broke the command. Anyways, we know, we know who you are. You know who you are. When I ask why, I'm asking God to revolve around me. There's a reason there's no why ever given in Genesis chapter 2. Because God was inviting the man and the woman into this dance. I need you to trust me. I want you to trust me. I want you to enter into this dance and go along. And what happens? They go to the tree and they fail. But what Mark's going to talk about is this second Adam. He's not going to go to a garden with tame animals. He's going to go to the wilderness with wild animals. And that same creature, that cunning crafty snake is going to be back. He's going to tempt him. But this time, this time he's going to pass the test. And it's not the only time he's going to be tempted because he's going to find himself in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be tested with a tree again. But this tree is going to be in the shape of a cross. And he's going to have to decide whether or not to go to the cross. Now think about this, folks. Why in the world would Jesus ever go to the cross? What did Jesus have to gain by going to the cross? He's already the son of God. He's already God in the flesh. He's already receiving glory and self-giving love from the Father and the Spirit. He's already being glorified. He has nothing to gain. Jesus goes to the cross and passes the test with the tree because he's moving toward us. He's orbiting his way toward us 
and he's inviting us into the dance. And when you hear about that story, when you read about that story, and it sounds beautiful, and it hits you differently, it's because God is inviting you into this dance. And just like Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, our baptism becomes our acceptance into the dance. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 28, when we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because when God decides to recreate the world, when God decides to recreate a person, it's always a triune effect. It's always the Father, the Son, and the Spirit involved. And he's inviting us to be recreated. He's inviting us into into this divine dance where we can find joy. If you have to be close to a fire to receive its warmth, you have to be close to God to receive the true joy and peace that only he can offer. And that's what he's in it for. It's for your joy. It's for my joy because he delights in us. Not because he was lonely. He wasn't lonely. He was living in loving relationship for all of eternity. He created us to share his joy with us, to invite us into this dance. And our baptism is a beautiful acceptance of that invitation. And as we've just done a few minutes ago, we paused our service. We broke out the fruit of the vine and the bread. And we reminded ourselves two important truths. We reminded ourselves that those of us who have confessed the name of Jesus this week, are going to reorient our lives around the Trinity, around the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because life drifts, we slowly move away and we come back every Lord's Day and we take that bread and we take that juice and we take Jesus in and we say, you are the center of my life. You are my one and only God, my most high, the most important and this week, wherever life takes me, I will shape and orient my life around you. I will go and move in and be led wherever you are taking me, God. I will remove whatever I need to remove that's drawing my heart away from you because I just delight in you. And the other truth that we proclaim is that we're in this thing together. That there are times we're going to have to give follow and lead with one another. Times we're going to have to move into each other. Times we're going to have to dance around one another because we're in this thing called life together. And that supper, that communion meal reminds us every week that it's not just about me and God, it's about me and you. We're in this together. And so when you think about the one God who is dwelling in heaven, one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit. You're reminded that you're invited into this dance. If you've never been baptized into Christ, you haven't received the true joy that only God can give. He's inviting you to accept that today. We're just like in Mark 1 where we read, God will speak in a powerful way his pleasure over you. The Spirit will empower you. The Son, through the blood that he shed on the cross, will wash away your sins. You'll be invited into the dance. You'll be added to the body of Christ. We're moving and orbiting our lives around one another, with one another, dancing together, choreographing our lives together, not only this week, but the rest of our lives here on this earth, sharing loving relationship with one another.
You see, church is not just showing up. It's living life together. This is what God invites us into. This is why the Trinity is so essential to us. So, if you're ready to receive the invitation of Christ to begin dancing with God today through baptism, we'd love to encourage you and to celebrate that with you today. If you need to recenter your life, you need to respond, maybe publicly or privately, our shepherds will be up front and in the back. You want them to pray with you. You want our church family to pray over you. We want to do whatever we can to encourage one another as we all are walking together with Christ every day. If we can help you in any way, please let us know as we stand and sing.